Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader, too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. Faith, discipline, hard work, and a whole lot of stamina. That's how you build a career like Steve Harvey's. Steve caught his first real break in 1993. He got a call to perform at the legendary Apollo Theater. Soon he'd take over as host of Showtime at the Apollo, and he never looked back. Today, Steve somehow manages to be on almost every channel at any time of day. He's a host of Family Feud, a morning radio show, a daytime talk show, a primetime talent show, and an international beauty pageant, just to name a few. And he's even written a couple of New York Times bestsellers. But Steve's path to stardom was not a straight line. Born in Welch, West Virginia, and raised in Cleveland, Ohio, Steve's journey was decades long and full of twists and turns and a whole lot of setbacks. After a string of unfulfilling jobs, Steve made an impossibly hard decision. He left his family to pursue a career in comedy, damaging relationships he'd spent much of his life trying to repair. Steve spent years homeless, living out of his 1976 Ford Tempo. Most people would have thrown in the towel at that point. But as Steve learned, following your dreams means being resilient and believing in yourself facing your fears, and most importantly, working, working, working really hard. Everybody has a story, and there is something to be learned from every experience. Use your life as a class. This is Masterclass with Steve Harvey. My first HBO special I shot down in Augusta, Georgia, at the Bell Auditorium. And one of the things that the stage set had created was this screen. And the way it was lit, you could stand behind the screen. You could see the audience, but the audience couldn't see you. So when it was time to perform, they took me out there and they set me. It was supposed to be go out there, stand 60 seconds, and the curtain comes up. And they had some technical difficulty. And they ended up leaving me out there like 10 minutes. And my thing has always been never walk on that stage until it's time for you to perform. So I can see people milling around. We want Steve. I'm behind a screen, frozen. I've never been afraid that long in my life. My heart rate had gotten so high. I look at my jacket and I'm telling you, man, I could see it moving. It's the most afraid I had ever been. And then all of a sudden, ladies and gentlemen, and I had to walk out there. I was trying to look smooth, but I was the most uncollected I had ever been in my entire career. And I was waving at the people, but on the inside, man, I was done. But I realized 
I can't go out there and explain to people what's happened. Hey, folks, I've been standing back here 10 minutes, and I'm a little bit off right now, and it's not going good. No, the curtain opened. I got to go. When you don't address the fear, it's behind you, and you can hear it breathing. And you're afraid to turn around because you're afraid of what it is. It can be this big back there breathing. But if you don't turn around and see that it's this big, in your mind, you got something that's the size of a mountain breathing that's going to swallow you up. What I've had to learn in my life was, as soon as you get afraid, turn around and address it, you oftentimes discover that the thing that you think is this big breathing mass blob that can come and overtake you is not that at all. And that's what happened, man. I was out there, and it turned out to be one of my greatest specials, man, one of the greatest specials. I had a severe stuttering problem when I was in school. You know, I couldn't talk outside of my house. I could talk around my friends, but anybody else, strangers, going to the store, church, school, girls, and I stuttered severely. And in the sixth grade, this teacher had an assignment one day. She asked us all to write on a piece of paper what we want to be when we grow up. Put your name on it, turn it in. That was it. And I wrote on my paper, I want to be on TV. And uh, she had everybody turn it in and stand up, and she called their name and read what they wanted to be. And she was just going down the list. Doctors, lawyers, football players, basketball players, police. So it got to me. And she said, little Stevie, come to the front of the class. And I went, wow. My answer must have been better than everybody's answer on the paper because I'm going to get a gold star. I never got a star in school. So I'm heading up to the front, but little did I know she wasn't calling to give me a gold star. She was calling to humiliate me. She said, why would you write something like this on your paper? And I'm standing there, and I started to just stutter and stammer. I, I, I. She said, who do you know in this school that's ever been on TV? I, I, who in your family has ever been on TV? I, I, I couldn't get nothing out. She said, who in this neighborhood has ever been on TV? And this lady was just laying into me, man. And I was just standing there. Just, I, I was locked up. And she said, and look at you. Look at you standing there. You can't even talk. How are they going to put somebody that talk like you on TV. And she crushed me, man. And then she said, you're really trying to be a smart aleck in school. So, you know, they used to pin a note on you. So she pinned my paper on me. And then she called my mother and told her, I'm trying to be a smart aleck in class. You know, and I get to the house, and my mom is waiting on me. Why are you being a smart aleck in class? I said, Mom, I'm not. She asked me what I want to be. And what you, what'd you write on your paper? I want to be on TV. Boy, were you going to write something like that on TV for that teacher? What she want you to write? I said, I don't know. She just asked me. I just told her. She said, well, when your father gets home, I'm going to tell your father, and your father going to teach you a lesson about being a smart aleck. So I had to wait on the steps on my dad to get home. My father came home. She said, Slick, which was my daddy's nickname, your boy been up at the school being a smart aleck. Now, I already know I'm going to get a whipping for this. She said, uh, tell him what you wrote on your paper. And I said, I want to be on TV. And my father said, well, what's wrong with that? And she said, well, he being a smart aleck and putting something like that that's unbelievable on the paper. 
So my father said, Bill, how come the boy can't put on the paper he want to be on TV? So they were starting to get into an argument, so I got sent to my room, which I knew what that meant. That means go in your room, get ready. We're going to get this whooping, right? So I go in my room, and after having a discussion, my father came in the room. He said, all right, this is what I want you to do. What does she want you to put on your paper? I said, I don't know, Daddy, like a basketball player, what all the rest of the kids wrote. He said, well, put that on the paper. Take that to school tomorrow and give it to her. Take your paper and put it in your drawer. Every morning when you get up, read your paper. And every night before you go to bed, read your paper. That's your paper. What he told me was a principle of success, that if you write it down and envision it, Anything you see in your mind, you can hold in your hand. He knew that, and so he gave that to me. After that, every year when the teacher was living, I used to send her a TV for Christmas because I wanted her to see me. She saw me one year, and she said, boy, you send me all these TV from wherever you are, and you don't understand. I got too many TV. I had to get these TVs away sometime. I know. It's all right, though. And I kept that paper. And that little boy with the stuttering problem is on TV seven days a week. Yeah. I'm on TV all the time. You dig? I had been writing jokes for a friend of mine named A.J. Jamal for like $5 a joke. And the way it got started was he was performing someplace, and he would write a joke, and he'd say, Steve, let me ask you something, man, because you funny. I'm going to say this, 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 and this. This is what I'm going to say. I said, no, nah, man, why don't you say this or this? he go, oh, yeah, that's better. And so one day I asked him, I said, hey, man, what, what, do, you, what do you do? With, with these jokes. And, uh, you know, he's a little vague about it. He said, I perform, I tell them at places, private events and stuff like that. And so fast forward, one day this girl was over his house named Gladys Jacobs. And she said, you don't want to be writing these jokes for A.J. Jamal? Well, he one of the funniest guys in the comedy club. I said, funniest in the what? She said, comedy club. I said, what is that? 27 years old. I'd never been in a comedy club, never heard of a comedy club. I knew of comedians, of course, but I didn't know there was clubs. It just wasn't in my world. She said, why are you writing these jokes for A.J. Jamal? You should tell him yourself at a comedy club. So Tuesday night, she picked me up and she took me down to this place called Hilarity's Comedy Club in Cuyahoga Falls. And I'm watching these guys and I'm not laughing at anything because I am mesmerized, man. I'm sitting there going, wow, these dudes is doing what I want to do. And I signed up to come up next week. I just wanted to sit down and see what it's like. So I went and put my name on next week. He said, folks, we had a cancellation. Somebody's not going to make it tonight. If uh, Steve Harvey's here, come on up. We'll, we'll, we'll move you up and put you up tonight. So the crowd started clapping. Now I'm drinking a grapefruit juice and I'm eating some chicken wings. And I told Gladys, I said, Gladys, somebody in here got the same name I got. She looked at me and she said, you know, you about one of the stupidest people I've ever met <laughs> She said, fool, that's you. And so I jumped up, and the crowd was clapping. 
So I walk down the runway, I shake his hand, and I turn around, I got nothing, because I'm not even ready for this. And I just told the audience, I said, hey, hey, listen, y'all, um, this ain't right, because I ain't supposed to be here. I'm on next week's show. And they start laughing. And Gladys said, tell him your story about boxing. And I told her this story about our boxing this guy named Bernard Taylor and what happened. The audience was spitting up laughing. And so a guy came to the foot of the stage and did like this. And I didn't know, because I'm not in show business, that this means cut. I thought he meant I was killing. You know, I was cutting their throats out. I was tearing it. You know, just... So anyway, he cut the mic off because I was going long. I said, well, this is what happened when you don't pay your bills around here. And I walked off. They brought all 10 of us back, clap off. I won $50. I got in the car, I started crying, man. And Gladys is driving. She said, why are you crying? It ain't but 50 bucks. I said, no, you don't understand. It's got nothing to do with the 50 bucks. I said, that's me. She said, what you mean that's you? I said, that's what I do. It was like the light had went off, man. It's like everything I'd ever wanted and dreamed about, I just saw it that night. I went to work the next day, and I told a buddy of mine named Russell Middlebrooks, I said, hey, man, I'm gonna quit my job. He said, for what? I said, I'm a comedian, man. He said, man, you gotta be crazy, man. So I put my stuff in a box. I walked into my uh, boss's office, name was Tom at the time. I said, Tom, I want to thank you for an opportunity, man. I say, but, uh, you know, something happened to me last night that changed my life. I want amateur night. I'm going to go be a professional comedian, so I won't be coming back to work. He said, listen, it's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. Are you, you lost your mind? He said, listen, Steve, you haven't said a funny thing since you've been here. Look, you got a family. You just had twin daughters. Don't do this to yourself. I'm gonna forget you ever came in here. Just take that, unpack your box, put your stuff back on your desk, let's get back to work here. I said, man, thanks for talking to me, Tom. I shook his hand, I went back out there and I was putting that stuff right back on my desk. Russell came up to me, he said, hey man, I thought you was quitting today. I said, yeah, but I went in there and talked to Tom and he told me that he ain't heard me say nothing funny, man, and you don't go chasing no pipe dream and all this here, man, and you got a family. He said, wow, man. So you just gonna let him talk you out of it like that? He said, man, you the funniest dude I know. And I went, wow. How does that guy, who I already don't think should be in charge of me, he just told me to forget that you cried for 40 minutes, that the light went off, that you knew you had found it. Why would I listen to him? You have to be in charge of yourself. If you give anybody else that power, you're in trouble. Because who are they taking direction from? How do they know which way you should go? That purely should be between you and your creator. So I put all that stuff back in the box, and I walked right back in his office. I was back there about 30 minutes. I came back. I said, hey, Tom, I appreciate what you said, man, but you know what? I decided I'm gonna go for it, man. I stuck my hand out to shake his hand. He said, I'd never shake your hand because this is the stupidest decision you've ever made. I walked out. I'd be damned, he was right. <laughs> it was one of the dumbest decisions I had ever made. <laughs> Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait.
Auto Trader. With a steady job and a wife and kids, Steve made a controversial decision. He left his family to pursue his dreams in comedy. The short-term consequences were a disaster. He became isolated from the people he loved and soon found himself broke and living in his car. Steve felt in his heart that he had made the right decision for him, but he wasn't sure where to turn next. I was at that point, man, I just couldn't figure out how I was going to ever get on TV, man. I was 36, 38. I had nowhere to go. I was homeless at the time. I lost my family based on this decision I made to follow my dream. I was struggling, man. It got really, really rough, man. Now, next thing I know, I'm in this car for three years, man. I'm struggling. My mother never knew I was homeless. She never knew. I said, oh, mama, I got friends out here I went to college with. I'm staying at my partner's house, man. I couldn't tell her I wasn't. I was homeless. That would have broke her heart. And my mother had allowed me to put an answer machine in the attic of the house, just a phone line and an answering machine. I was out there living in a car and I was struggling, but I could call back to that answering machine and see if I got any work. You know, back in the day, you punch your code in, doop, you have a message. And so I was washing up in a hotel, and I used to go to really nice hotels because they had, like, washcloths, and I'd get a bunch of them and run them under hot water, and I'd go in the stall and I'd wet my body. And then some of them would have soap on them, and I'd soap myself up. Then I would go out and I would get another handful and wet them down, and I'd come and I'd take the soap off with them. Well, I got soaped up, but a convention was in town, and they had let out for breakfast. And so for 45 minutes, it was just a parade of men coming in that bathroom. And I'd take it off my clothes to get lathered up. And I, all of a sudden, this soap is drying on me. And I just let the lid down, and I set some towels down, I just started crying. And a guy heard me in there. He said, hey, sir, are you okay? I said, oh, yeah, 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 I'm fine, I'm fine. But I was done at that point. I said, that's it, man. I can't do this anymore. I'm homeless. I got nowhere to go. And I had 35 bucks, and I'm in Florida, and I'm going to get on 65 and go straight. 35 bucks will get me home. So I call my mom's answering machine first, and, and there was a message from Chuck Sutton, who's passed now, the great Chuck Sutton. He said, hey, Steve, this is Chuck Sutton from Showtime at DePaula. We saw a tape of you and was wondering, man, it was a great tape. You're really funny. We have an opening for you this Sunday night. It's Thursday. It's Thursday. If you could just get here, we'll put you on the show on television, man. You're very funny. Let us know if you can make it. Boop. And it goes off. And I went, wow. As soon as I went, wow, my heart sunk. Because now how do I get to New York? I got $35, man. I don't have enough to make it to New York. There's no way. The one time I could finally get on TV and I can't even get to the gig. I'm in Pensacola, Florida. I got to get to Harlem, New York. I don't have no money. I can't eat. I don't have a place to stay. This is horrible, man. So I sat in my car, 
tears just running down my face, man. I said, this has got to be the worst joke I've ever heard. I said, no, let me call back and make see if he said Sunday. So I called right back. Doop. It was this Sunday. And I got ready to hang up. And then I heard, doop, you have another message. Hey, Steve, this is Tom Sobel from the Comedy Caravan. I got a gig that's available in Florida tomorrow night, which is Friday night. I got 150 bucks for you if you can get there. Friday night is Thursday. I'm 100-some miles away. Yeah, man. So I get in the car, I drive. I do the gig. The guy pays me 150 bucks. He said, man, you were so good. I'll cancel the guy Saturday night. Would you stay Saturday night? He gave me 300 bucks to stay for Saturday. I had 475 bucks. I called Chuck Sutton. I said, I'll be there. Got at the Apollo Theater at 2 o'clock, and I went out there, and I got a standing ovation. Man, I was on cloud nine. I mean, it was the greatest moment of, of my life up until that point. I had killed at the world-famous Apollo Theater. And that was it. I was on TV. Everybody has a turn-back moment in their life. Everybody has a moment in their life where they want to just turn around and go back. It's, it's too far. It's too hard. It's too steep. It's taking too long. I'm exhausted. I've lost patience. My faith is weak. I'm going to just go back to wherever I was, where it was safe, where I didn't feel all these things. And the sad thing about it is most people take the turn. They make that U-turn and head back. That's that God, man. He just comes at the most unexpected times. He shows up. The thing I've learned is you can never give up because you don't know when he's coming. He knew I was at the end of the rope, though. He had to know this was it. Because very rarely has he ever heard me say I quit. And I guess he knew I had about had enough. He said, I better throw this dude a bone. And that bone was Showtime at the Apollo. First of all, for me, failure is not failure. It's a valuable, learned, gained experience. Failure is kind of cool because it teaches you what not to do. It's like comedy. When I became friends with Basil and Hinkle and Wilson and A.J. Jamal and Dennis Butler and all these comedians. Some nights, a guy would be on stage bombing. I mean, he would be up there dying a dog's death. Well, nobody wants to see a guy die, so most of the comedians would go in the back, laugh at something else, get their mind off of it. I would pull up a chair and stare at this guy who was dying. And they used to always wonder, man. I would come out the room and they go, hey, man, Steve, the dude was in that bomb and stinking up the room. What you sitting in there for? I said, because I was learning. I said, what you mean you was learning? I said, listen, man, this guy is bombing. If this guy turns this room around, I'm going to need to know that trick one night. Because one night, I'm going to be dying. I'm going to be bombing. And I got to remember, whatever technique that guy used to flip the room around, I'm going to need that technique. And this is like a funny thing about comedy, because comedy, you only learn this business when you're failing. You don't learn anything from killing the room. When you're out there killing, what's that? You wrote a joke, everybody laughed. Okay, cool. 
What happens when you write a joke and nobody laughs? So you learn when you fail. You know, it's like the old saying that says, uh, experience is priceless. It's a shame you have to pay for it with your youth. <laughs> Look, I'm 60 now, right? So I'm like extremely experienced, but it cost me over half a century. <laughs> I was with a friend who went to the hospital one day and uh, asked me to go with him. His grandmother was dying. He said, hey, Harv, you know, you good with this kind of stuff. Just go with me, man. I was just standing behind him, just sort of holding him up, man. Come on, man, just stay on your feet. He kept calling, my dear, my dear, I love you. And she said, baby, I'm not going to make it. I'm finna go home. But I called you down here because I want to ask you something. She said, do you know your great-grandfather's name? He said, no, my dear, I don't. She said, you know why? She said, because he didn't leave you nothing. She said, when I die, I want you to go away from here, and I want you to live your life so that your children's grandchildren will know your name. And the only way for them to know who you are is you got to leave them something. That day, he didn't get the message, but I heard it, though. I heard it. And when I heard that, it changed me. And it changed me to the point where I said, wow, I'm going to start living my life so that my grandkids' kids know my name, then I've accomplished the deal. We're a blended family. Marjorie had three kids, I had four. All of these kids call me dad. All of them have my last name. Even Marjorie's children asked for my name. They wanted their name to be Harvey. It's because of what I've stood for to, to them, really investing in their dreams, really talking to them, really giving them advice. My son, Jason, was on my TV show. They were doing a birthday show for me. So they had all of my kids, all seven of them, telling what I meant to them. And when it got to Jason, who was Marjorie's oldest, only biological son, you know, Jason came to me when he was 15, and he said, I want to change my last name to your last name. And it was emotional for us, you know. We sat on the back balcony, and I teared up. And so we go to court and we change his name. And I took him to get his driver's license. I taught him to drive and he passed his driver's test and he gets in the car and he's got his license. And we're driving in the car and he shows me his license. I said, boy, that's good, you got your license. He said, no, dad, look, man, my name's Jason Harvey. And me and him drove home, man, crying. That was like really, really a cool moment for me. And so I'm building everything now to build a legacy, a, a life to where my little granddaughter, Elle, and my granddaughter, Rose, and grandson, Noah, and grandson, Benjamin, they're going to know my name. But I want their kids to know my name.
when they kids know my name and say, my great-grandfather was Steve Harvey, let me tell you what he did. That's what it's about. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. Yeah, I've been told by everybody you can't do that. You can't have that many shows. You're overexposed. I've been to Dubai, Africa, the Maldives, London, Paris, Germany. Everywhere I go, I see a Nike swoosh. Now, I ain't nowhere near as exposed as Nike. Nike is on billboards and walls. They on jerseys. They on buses. They on buildings, they on commercials, they on shoes, shirts, hoodies, socks, they on drawers. All I want to do is be on TV. I'm a big black Nike swoosh. <laughs> <laughs> Greatness for me is different from success. You know, being successful is one thing. That's uh, earning a living climbing the corporate ladder, getting accolades. Greatness is different for me. My definition of great has so much to do with family. You know, I talk to my sons all the time, and I, so I said, look, man, you all are young men right now, but your greatness will come the day that you love someone else more than you love yourself. And you'll really be digging into what manhood is. You're a man with your job, your athletics or whatever, you're a man. But that real manhood, that gets into an area when you love someone else more than you love yourself. You are tapping into what real manhood is really all about. Comedy is about 250 don'ts. The rest of the stuff, you can do whatever you want to. But it's 250 things <laughs> in comedy that you can't do. You know, you got to read the room when you go in. You can't, on the front row, strike up a conversation with a woman and ask her how many months she is. You can't do that. Because if she's zero months, I can't even tell you the night you in for, partner. Because you're gonna have one person on the front row who hates you with every fiber in her, and she's gonna register on your face. And funny thing about comedy, man, when you're in the room, you could be killing. You look and you find the one person that ain't laughing, that's the one person <laughs> that you're focused on. I was performing at Catch a Rising Star in Boston. Opened up the show and I used to do a joke about Ray Charles. Very funny joke, man. When I got to the punchline, man, nothing. And I had done the joke perfectly. And it was the how I opened my show, because it was a killer joke. No one laughed. And so it threw me off so bad, I hadn't been in the business but a couple of years. So I stuck my hand out. I said, man, 
Man, if you ain't gonna laugh at me, at least shake my hand, just trying to get something started, and the guy wouldn't shake my hand. So I said, what's the matter, man, you blind? And he said, as a matter of fact, I am. And little did I know that they had seated on the first two rows to Cambridge School of the Blind. Now, Larry Miller, who's a very famous comedian, he's in the back of the room with his head in an ice bucket. He laughing so hard. He can't believe because he knew. He knew that was my opening joke. But he didn't tell me, hey, Steve, be careful. There's two rows of blind people in here. And I walked out there, and he was in the back with a guy named Steve Trillick. And the only two people in the room was laughing was Larry Miller and Steve Trillick. I mean, they knocking drinks off the body laughing so hard, man. And then the blind people told me, hey, you didn't know. Don't worry about it. Shake it off. They were cool, but the rest of the audience hate me. They thought I was the worst human being. Why would you come out here and do this joke in front of these people? I didn't know. Read your room. You got to know what not to do, man. <laughs> My oldest son and I just had a conversation. He's 25, Broderick Stephen Harvey Jr. He said, Dad, I used to didn't understand him. I used to watch you at Showtime at the Apollo. It was the only time I could see you. So when he was doing the Apollo special with me and he started crying, I asked him, I said, what you crying for, man? He said, man, you don't know how important it is for me to be here. He said, dad, this is the place, the only time I could see you was on Saturday night at one o'clock in the morning. I go, wow, that's my dad. That's my father. Because I was gone, I was absent. And he says, man, to be here. And he just started sobbing. I just held him. I said, hey, son, I had to go. He said, I know. I know. I've spent my entire adult life trying to make up for that mistake, trying to be the man that I was supposed to be. And so having the chance with my family and Marjorie coming along and accepting everybody, Marjorie has become the best thing that's ever happened to me. She was so accepting of my children which was greatness for me, man, because I was trying to reestablish relationships with my three children. My whole goal growing up was for my mother and father to be proud of me. It's a funny thing. Now I want my children to be proud of me. It's kind of crazy, you know, really, when I think about it, you know. I'm older than all of them. What I need them to stick their chest out about me for, you know. I'm their father, you know. I'm sure my sons want me to be proud of them, too. They tell me that all the time. I just want you to be proud of me, Dad. But I so desperately want them to be proud of me. I want to have lived my life, man, so they get it. So they want to jump theyself. Take chances. Take chances, man. Don't stand on this cliff being safe. I want you to get out there and try it. Marjorie's motto is, your wings work. Use them. She says that all the time, and she walks away. It's almost like, and baby, I go, well, baby, ain't we supposed to do some other type of parenting here? Aren't we supposed to, like, hold their hands? She said, no, stop. Let them go fail. Let them get it wrong. Let them get it wrong till it hurts. And we do. I call life the beautiful grind. The reason I think life is a beautiful grind because it is a grind, man. It's, it's challenging. 
Life is challenging, man. For you to think that life is a, is a, is a, is a skip in the tulips and roses, you got to be crazy. You're going to lose a loved one. You're going to hurt beyond any pain you could think of. You're going to be disappointed. You're going to be heartbroken. You're going to be discouraged. But the beauty of it is, on the other side of all of that, it's this wonderful thing that you get to experience every day when you wake up if you have the right attitude. Even in the weight of it all, living is a beautiful thing, man. Because it's like the ebb and flow. It's got its peaks, its valleys. You know, it's, it's like a river, man. It just snakes through, but it's really pretty. There are no straight lines in nature. It just don't go like that. And nature is the most beautiful thing in the world, but there are no straight lines. When you feel like giving up, don't. When you're thinking about giving up, don't. When it look like you ain't going to make it, keep going. When they tell you you can't, come on, man, who are they? When they tell you to put, your, put, put all your stuff back on your desk, don't do that, man. Don't do that. When they tell you you're not funny, you're not going to make it, don't believe them, man. Don't believe them. You got to be relentless. When they tell you that you overexposed, be relentless. I'm not overexposed. I'm just a big black Nike swoosh. Get it wrong till it hurts. Well, that's a piece of wisdom. In some ways, Steve has lived multiple lives. He's made audiences laugh on the stage and screen, become a dedicated father, and through his talk shows and books, inspired a lot of people around the world. Though it wasn't easy, Steve maintains that none of it could have or even should have gone any other way. He walks the road of belief and hard work. Steve Harvey, for your humor, your advice, your strength, and endless faith, you're a master. I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to Masterclass, the podcast. You can follow Masterclass on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't already, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Masterclass podcast. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader, too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.